Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. If you love Atlanta, you can invest in the big picture. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. I'm Erlon Woods. I'm Nigel Poor. We're the hosts and creators of Ear Hustle from PRX's Radiotopia. Ear Hustle is a show about life inside prison, but it's not your typical prison podcast. In this next season, we've got stories about the objects people keep inside their prison cells. About residents in a women's prison who say they want to stay there. And the most beautiful prison garden. Erlon, I will never forget it. Ear Hustle. Stories about life on the inside, told by those who live it. Find Ear Hustle wherever you get your podcasts. From WABE in Atlanta, welcome to this Wednesday and very special edition of Closer Look. I'm Rose Scott. Let's go back. March 11th, 2020. The World Health Organization declares the coronavirus outbreak a global pandemic. Then a few days later, March 14th, Governor Brian Kemp right here in Georgia signs a public health state of emergency to address the virus. This declaration will greatly assist health and emergency management officials across Georgia by deploying all available resources for mitigation and treatment of COVID-19. If necessary, unlike other states of emergency, This declaration will allow the Department of Public Health to direct specific health care action in extraordinary circumstances. Wow, it may be hard to believe. Now, 19 months later, the pandemic continues, but now there are vaccines and even booster shots. That's the good news. But there are still some ongoing challenges globally, nationwide, and depending on the state, a different set of issues. What about Georgia's progress and some lingering challenges related to COVID-19? We're joining Closer Look, making his debut on the program, Georgia Governor Brian Kemp. Governor Kemp, thanks for taking the time. Welcome. Hey, Rose, good to be on with you. Appreciate it. We would be talking about the Georgia Bulldogs, but we're not going to do it this time. Next time, though. Big game Saturday. All right. Let's 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 begin here, Governor, because in that clip we played March 14th of last year, and you ended that press conference by saying, quote, we are in this fight together. Because of that, we will be, we will be stronger than ever. And may God continue to bless this great state and nation, close quote. What is your overall assessment of where the state is right now in combating this virus? Well, I'll tell you, when I was listening to you, to you go back on kind of the start of this whole thing, gosh, it seems like a decade ago in a, in a lot of ways. And it's been a very hard time for our state and for the nation, uh, but also people around the world. And I'm just so proud of Georgians of how resilient they've been. Uh, I think every family, every Georgian's been affected, obviously, by COVID. Um, The devastating effects it's had either on their family members and folks they know in the local community. And we just continue to plow through it every day. But we still have to keep uh, grinding the way it's been a grind, and we're still grinding now. I also want to give you an opportunity for listeners who may not know about your decision-making process Who among the state agencies and departments were part of the decisions you would ultimately make regarding how the state would proceed through all of this? Well, listen, that's been, uh, I think, part of my approach is to try to be talking and listening and having conversations with a lot of different people, not just in state government. I mean, obviously, Dr. Toomey and her team at Public Health have been very involved, as well as the senior staff in the governor's office, but we've worked with the 
Department of Community Health, our correction system, Department of Juvenile Justice, Department of Natural Resources, obviously State Patrol, Georgia National Guard. I mean, there's been agency after agency's been involved, but as we've made decisions, we've also been working with the private sector. Uh, I've had great communication with uh, our hospital CEOs and our hospital institutions around the state, our schools as well, school leadership and others that are in, um, that have to do with decision-making at the local level. Uh, so, and, and as well as the legislature. So we've had a lot of folks we've been talking to, obviously other experts in, in the field of medicine and public health as well. Let's talk about one of the first major decisions you had to make, and that involves a shutdown. While many states had a shutdown for an extended period of time, you cited economic concerns when you reopened some businesses April 24th. And I want to ask you, that decision at any time, Governor Kemp, did you think about reconsidering this action? Did you have to go no. back and forth? Uh, no, I didn't. I mean, obviously, all these decisions you're making, whether it was that one or others, they're all tough decisions. I mean, we were dealing with a global pandemic. You know, obviously, I had never done that. I don't think any other governor in the country has done that either. I know uh, the president at the time hadn't hadn't either. So we were all dealing with something that was new and it was a moving target literally every single day. I mean, the first several, several months of the pandemic, we were working 24 hours a day, seven days a week, uh, very grueling schedule because there were just so many fires we were having to, to put out. But, you know, one thing I've known for a long time being in business and uh, running a state agency myself is that you've got to get good information, get all the information you can get on both sides of the issue or any sides of the issues. But in these kind of times, you need leaders that'll make tough decisions. And that's what I've done, not only with the reopening and, you know, there was obviously a lot of national hysteria around that decision. But I, I will also say, you know, most people didn't realize, but we never shut most of the economy down to start with. So it was just a few segments of it that we reopened uh, because I felt like those industries and those hardworking Jordans had done what we asked them as a government at the national level and at the state level to help us build PPE supplies and hospital bed capacities and be able to prepare for what was coming. And it was time to reopen and, and do two things, protect lives, but also protect people's paycheck and their livelihoods. And I think our state has benefited greatly from that decision. So in other words, I want to be clear, you felt if there was a continued shutdown for a long period of time, that would have been an economic disaster for the state? You feel that? Well, I feel like it, I feel like it would have been a disaster in a lot of ways. You know, a lot of the things that Dr. Toomey and I both warned about early on, uh, even outside of the, the economic um, circumstances that we surely would have faced as a state, but we talked about, you know, and not, not many in the media covered this. They're covering it now, though. They talked, you know, we talked about, you know, when kids aren't in school, the mental health issues that that creates when, you know, people are not getting enough physical exercise, when people, I mean, literally uh, the media did a great job of scaring people from going to the hospital um, at a time. What do you mean by that? Take that further. Well, well, I'm saying the media was, was writing so many scary things that scared people from actually making a decision to go get health treatments like cancer uh, cancer treatments. You know, people would be uh, not going to, to get medical conditions checked out because they were simply scared of a virus that they knew so little about. And that's one reason 
when the second wave come, came, the media again said, are you going to shut down? I was being pressured to shut down again. I had people in the administration that were trying to get me to shut down again. And the hospital CEOs, uh, unbeknownst to anyone out there, were saying, please don't shut down again. It almost bankrupt us the last time that we did that because it, it cuts their life, their financial lifeblood off. And that's the thing that, unfortunately, uh, a lot of people wouldn't write about or or you know, be on TV saying they're only highlighting the worst of the news that's out there. They're not highlighting all the other things and positive things that are going on or how safe it was to go into hospitals at that time because of the way they were handling and separating COVID patients from the rest of the populations that needed this care. And that's one reason you saw our hospitals extremely busy even in, even before the Delta wave came through. But, you, but, Governor, with all due respect, you say the media, or do you mean folks on social media? No, I mean the media, people on social media, literally scared people from going into the hospital because they just, you know, made it out to be so bad that, you know, you couldn't even walk out of your, your home without getting, getting COVID. And that was, you know, you, you could go back and look at press conference after press conference, Dr. Toomey and I both, uh, we're telling people and begging people, look, do not put off critical health procedures or if you're feeling bad, you know, you should go to the doctor. You should go to the hospital. Don't go because you're scared of the virus. They know how to deal with you, and that's well documented. Well, and I think that when that happens, I think you as the governor has every right to call out any credible or non-credible media outlet that does that, news media outlet. And I'm going to say this because here at WABE, I know we did not do that. And here on this program, I know we did not do that. But I want to talk about the criticism because even then, President well, Donald Trump, hold on one second, even then, President Donald Trump criticized you. How did you deal with that? Because, look, Governor, there were tweets calling you hashtag Killer Kemp and hashtag Kemp Kills. You got the president criticizing you. What's going through your mind then? Well, you know, that, that's what you deal with when you're governor. It was pandemic politics in full display. You know, there was a lot of members of the uh, the Democrats in the legislature that were doing the same thing, and they did that every time there was a wave. They played pandemic politics. You'd have to ask them why they were criticizing me. I don't. I don't really have time to sit around here and worry about who's criticizing me. I'm making good decisions in conjunction, like I've said, with Dr. Toomey and uh, a lot of other hardworking people. And I think if you look back, you know, our, our COVID numbers have held up. Uh, as good as any other state in the country, you know, within a, a, a small significant, you know, margin of difference. And our economic prosperity is as good as anybody in the country right now. If you're just joining us, I'm in conversation with Georgia Governor Brian Kemp, and we're taking a look back to the present and the future as Georgia is responding to the coronavirus pandemic here. Well, let's fast forward a little bit because I do want to talk about then local governments and your relationship with them. Do you have any regrets about maybe having a better holistic approach to working with local governments as opposed to, let's say, city of Atlanta and threatening lawsuits and, and all that? Because at the end of the day, it is about saving lives. And also you mentioned the economic component as well. But you look at a city like Atlanta and Fulton County, which has a high percentage of a high risk population. You look at Hall County. So can you understand local governments wanting to say, hey, we need to protect our citizens, our residents, based on how this virus is attacking our folks. And maybe we would, have, would like a little bit more help from the state as opposed to threatening with lawsuits and back and forth on Twitter and all that. And that's on both sides, Democrat, Republicans, well, well, everybody in between. 
Well, with all due respect, we gave a lot of help to local communities. Um, our, our Georgia Emergency Management Agency, which I haven't mentioned yet, the National Guard, we sent all kinds of people, all kinds of PPE supplies, ventilators to local hospitals. We set up uh, state purchased hospitals in local communities around the state, uh, state to make sure that they had additional bed center capacity. We stood up uh, a uh, Georgia World Congress Center hospital facility. Uh, so when local communities were you know, having a hard time with bed capacity, wherever it was in the state, that we had folks for people to have a bed. So to, to say that we didn't work with them is not true. No, I didn't uh, say I you would, didn't work would, with them. I said, well, do you regret your relationship, you back, I would, though? I would point you back to early in the pandemic when you had local governments that were taking actions to shut things down People were leaving and going to other places in our state to second homes. And I had those local governments saying, hey, you need to do a statewide order. We can't have this piecemeal, you know, one one city or one county's doing this and somebody else right next to them's doing that. We need a statewide order. That's what the the mayors and a lot of the elected local elected officials want, uh, around the state wanted early in the pandemic. Well, I did that to make sure we had uh, continuity, if you will, around the state. Well, then when they didn't like the way I was doing things or things got better, then all of a sudden they wanted to have their local control back. And I would just tell you, you can't have it both ways. I tried to be very consistent. Uh, the media got it completely wrong again on the whole city of Atlanta issue. All they wrote about that it was a fight over mass mandates that had nothing to do with it. Uh, the mayor took action to violate my executive order to close businesses back down again, small businesses, restaurants and others uh, to not be able to do in-person dining. And if you look at the data, the outbreaks that we were seeing and our contact tracing did not show that infections were coming from outbreaks in restaurants or bars or anything else. We had great, great rules and regulations in place working with the private sector that had been working well. And that's what that lawsuit was all about. And I would remind you, there was only a few mayors around the state, Savannah and Atlanta, that did that. And if you look at the timing on much of that, it was all pandemic politics again. But pandemic politics, Governor, you know that politics, unfortunately, gets into a lot of things that it probably shouldn't. But again, at the end of the day, if we're talking about lives, if we're talking about specific populations that are at a higher risk for this virus, shouldn't those local governments be able to mandate whether it's a, a level one, a level two, level three, level four, because they are concerned about the spread of that virus in their communities. Well, Rose, wouldn't you agree, though, that the local government shouldn't be able to take your economic viability away when there's no data that shows that, that they're a problem? I mean, you're going to ruin somebody financially. We've seen that in these other states where governors have done that literally generational businesses, many small businesses, and many in the city of Atlanta, I might add, are minority owned and have a large minority workforce. You know, I wasn't forcing people to be open. I wasn't forcing anyone to go dine there. Mm -hmm. I was simply giving them the ability uh, to run their business and to keep a roof over their head, be able to buy food and medicine for their children. You know, the government wasn't forcing them to do that. What the mayor was doing was forcing them to close and ruin their business. And that was against the executive order. And that's why the lawsuit was filed. And you did with you did withdraw it because of, here we talk about Atlanta. You did withdraw that lawsuit. 
I'm assuming you and the mayor came to some agreement. That's all we can assume. But let's talk about then the vaccination rollout here in Georgia. And I heard Dr. Toomey talk about being surprised that in rural parts of Georgia, particularly rural white Georgians, weren't getting vaccinated. Should that have been a surprise, you think, given you just mentioned pandemic politics? Well, I don't think it was just, you know, rural white Georgians that weren't getting vaccinated. I mean, obviously there's vaccine hesitancy in the African-American community and other communities that, that is are true. out there. But most of the Do- rural, doctor, I'm talking about rural though. Let's focus on rural. Then we get into the minority population. Well, you mentioned when you asked the question, you said the vaccine rollout. Sure. I'm, I'm, I'm talking about the whole vaccine rollout. Of course, you know, part of the problem early in the pandemic was the federal government sent vaccines to the nursing homes. And a lot of the people working in the nursing homes um, that, you know, are seeing the front lines of COVID would not take the vaccination, you know, and I don't know what the makeup, um, the demographic or racial makeup of those employees are, um, but they're working in the healthcare industry. They're on the front lines of where the most, you know, the pandemic was most deadly early on and they, they chose not to get vaccinated. Um, that's one reason that we had so many uh, vaccines laying around in South Georgia because people down there wouldn't take them. Mm-hmm. And that's why we were one of the first states, if not the first state in the country, to open up the eligibility to folks that are medically fragile and people that were uh, essential workforce um, so that we could get people getting vaccinated. But, you know, vaccine hesitancy is not just a Georgia issue or sure. a rural Georgia issue. True. If you look all around the South, it's been that way and there's it's been that way in other parts of the country. And, you know, I personally don't think mandates and pressing from the federal government then or now was the way to tackle that problem. But that's what they've uh, certainly doing right now. Let's talk about that, Governor, because right now and I'm looking at the Georgia Department of Public Health, the vaccine dashboard, looking at it right now in a Georgia by those who have at least one dose, it's at 54 percent. In terms of full vaccination, it's at 47 percent. What is an acceptable number for you, you think? Do you think Georgia can get to 50 percent at some point at the end of the year, middle of next well, year? I, yeah, I mean, my figures are showing that we got 54 percent of over 12 year olds uh, have had one dose and 64 percent um, or maybe it's 64 percent have had one dose and 54 um, or let me see, let me start over. Okay. I think 54% are fully vaccinated and 64% have had a full dose for over 12. But I, I'll, you can correct me if I'm wrong on that. Your figures may be, may be right. But I think one thing that people never mention when you talk about the vaccination rate, look, I'm vaccinated, my family's vaccinated. I have been on the front lines for a very long time encouraging people to get vaccinated, talk to their doctor. We did mass vaccination sites. We coordinated with the federal government on the on the federal sites that they had in Georgia, especially Mercedes Benz. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've been working with local health departments. We've done pop up sites. I mean, we're we've got a, a you know a, a, a racial council that um, doctor or diversity council I think is better is the correct name mm-hmm. that Dr. Toomey put together to work on vaccine hesitancy in certain communities around the state. And I mean, I went to rural Georgia to get vaccinated myself to help you know, raise the avail- the, 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 the viability of people getting vaccinated and, and continue to tell people, look, nobody trusts the government right now. When you have the president of the United States come out and say, get vaccinated, take your mask off, 
and now they're telling you to put it back on. Uh, when you have the vice president of the United States who under when President Trump was in charge of the vaccine said she wouldn't take the vaccine and now she's encouraging people to do so. Those mixed messages build distrust uh, with a lot of people in our state and across the country. I think that's so a very valid point. Folks have what said, I'm telling people is, look, just talk to your doctor, you know, talk to your faith leader, talk to your local pharmacist, talk to people you trust. I mean, I have friends that are not getting vaccinated. I've had friends that, you know, have had terrible medical outcomes because they weren't vaccinated. People have lost their lives because they weren't vaccinated. Um, but it's not going to be the government, in my opinion, that's going to convince people to get vaccinated. In fact, it'll probably run a lot of people away that have that hesitancy. Um, so I think people should talk to their medical community uh, or their doctor about about doing that. But I continue to encourage it. We, we're going to do everything that we can to continue to get people to get vaccinated. You know, we did the uh, state holiday and had a uh, the largest day that month. I guess that was in uh, September, when we did that, we had about 20,000 Georgians get their first dose that day. So, I mean, we're doing our part, private industry and private businesses doing their part. And certainly Dr. Toomey and her team continue to do their part, as well as a lot of people in private medicine. You're absolutely right, because we've had folks on this program talk about mixed messaging and how problematic it's been. No one argues with that. I want to get into the schools, though, for a second, because as you know, and it the local school districts, depending on which one you go to, you're going to have a different set of protocols. Why not a mask mandate, Governor Kemp, for all the public school districts? Well, local schools have the local ability to do a mask mandate. You know, I've been working with a lot of school superintendents over the whole pandemic about when we close schools, how we're going to reopen schools. We've worked with them to get PPE supplies. We bought every school in the state uh, electrostatic sprayer and, and gave them chemicals to be able to clean those facilities. We've given, I don't know, hundreds of thousands, probably a million masks to mm -hmm. schools to help them reopen. But every school's different, Rose. You know, and I've learned this over the years talking to the superintendents. They want to have that ability uh, to deal with things on the local level. Um, I know this will find you shocking, but people in different communities have different ways of thinking about how uh, you that, should handle the pandemic. That, that's not a shock. <laughs> and, and, you know, you know, as well as I do, we have a state constitutionally mandated school superintendent who's elected statewide like me. We have local school boards that, you know, actually are, are the governing body for the local schools. And so I felt like it's best to allow them to have local control, especially as we open back up this year. You've had many systems that have, have done mass mandates. You've had others that added them. You had some that uh, did a mass mandate and people became so outraged two days later, they in, they undid the mass mandate. Uh, so I don't think a one, one stop, you know, one shot fits or one stop fits all approach here is the best way to go in schools. And we've allowed them to have that local control. Let's move to higher education real quickly because I know we're short on time, but the State Department of Public Health is responsible for the contract tracing through Georgia's colleges and universities and the University System of Georgia. But, Governor Kemp, I get emails. I'm hearing from students, professors who want to know, can you, with your authority, can you investigate, can you mandate that this contact tracing protocol is actually working? And I, I have this information. I can share it with you. We can, you know, 
Well, we'd be glad to take a look at the information. I have not heard that. Uh, Dr. Toomey's not raised that issue to me. You know, there gets to be a time uh, during these different bumps that we see in increases in cases where, you know, contact tracing begins to not be effective. You have so many people that are getting infected, you're better off uh, pushing the real solution to all of this, and that is getting people vaccinated uh, and really focusing on large outbreaks and things of that nature. But when you have such a high rate of spread as we've seen, not only uh, with the Delta variant, but other times throughout the pandemic, and every state has, but those are decisions that I leave up to Dr. Toomey. I mean, she's the one that's telling her team what they need to be focused on. She's mm -hmm. the, you know, the expert in doing all of this. She's done this her whole career. And, uh, you know, we are trusting, to make, trusting her to make those decisions. And if there's ever, you know, resources or anything else she needs, she knows that I'm a phone call away. As we wrap up, there's a question I've asked so many on this program about their optimism. And I'll ask you the same question. Where do you think... Georgia will be maybe a year from now. Now, we know the coronavirus is not just going to magically disappear. We know that. It's going to be with us. But where do you hope the state is a year from now? Well, I think we're going to be in a great position just because our people are so resilient. I want to thank everybody. Uh, I mean, look, a lot of these decisions are hard. I know a lot of people don't agree with some of the decisions I've made, but I can honestly tell you I've tried to take all the information I can and make the best decision I can at the time. Uh, I've listened to a lot of people um, and gotten a lot of information when making those decisions. And I think because of that, a year from now, uh, we're going to be in a really good spot. I mean, I, I have no idea, you know, when this pandemic's going to turn into an epidemic and we kind of move on to fighting the flu and, a, and another, you know, seasonal virus every year. Uh, but we're going to keep our foot on the gas as long as we can and as long as we need to. Uh, but our economy is doing incredible because of our measured reopening. We've got great opportunity for, you know, every citizen in our state. We continue to stay focused on a lot of other issues now that the pandemic disrupted, you know, 15, 16 months ago, uh, whether it's public health, general health care, affordable health care, infrastructure, jobs, uh, making sure people are safe in our local communities, specifically in the city of Atlanta. And just making sure we continue to be a great state to live, work, and raise our families. So I'm very optimistic about where we are and uh, really where we've been. It's, it's been a tough time in our state, as a lot of people can remember for a lot of reasons. Uh, but we've got to remain optimistic. And that's what I would tell uh, my fellow Georgians to do. And finally, Governor, you know the quote, adversity doesn't build character, it reveals it. What's been the takeaway for you about your leadership during this extraordinary time, these last 19 months, and again, to give you a final call on this, do you regret any decisions that you made that you would like to maybe take back? Well, I think looking back on the pandemics, it's hard to really question leaders and Monday morning quarterback when you're dealing with something that nobody's dealt with before. And even uh, a tremendous amount of public health experts, I would remind you, um, had outrageous models that we never even got close to uh, hitting the mark that they said early in the pandemic, and we still have it. And you don't hear a lot of people criticizing them, so I won't either. I would just tell people I'll let history be the judge of my decision-making process, and uh, obviously the voters will as well. Uh, but, look, I want people to know I remain committed and grinding away every day. I mean, I get up at 5 o'clock every morning. I'm reading as much as I can about COVID and the economy and a lot of other things and we're working hard every single day 
to keep our state moving forward. Our cases are going down again. Our hospitalizations have dropped dramatically. And so I feel like we're over this hump again, but we got to keep our foot on the gas and continue to people talk to people about getting vaccinated and, and getting the pandemic behind us and moving on to where we're not dealing uh, with such a deadly virus. I think everybody wants that. Georgia Governor Brian Kemp, thank you so much for taking time. I really appreciate it. You coming back? Be glad to come back. Go dogs. Listen to you. Go Razorbacks. <laughs> Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. You can go beyond giving to impact. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. And Closer Look continues now. This is 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. A reminder to catch the rebroadcast of the the conversation with Georgia Governor Brian Kemp later this evening at 7 p.m. as well as in our podcast. Now joining me now for reaction to the segment and some other COVID-19 updates. Well, WABE health reporter and host of the podcast, Did You Wash Your Hands? Sam Whitehead. Sam, thanks as always. Appreciate you. Hey, Rose. Good to be with you. Uh, let's begin here. What stood out for you from Governor Kemp in our conversation? Uh, a lot of things. I was taking some uh, some notes as y'all were talking. Um, you know, we, we heard some things, I think, that we've heard from the governor over the course of the pandemic, uh, some of which I think uh, people would quarrel with. You know, y'all were talking a little bit about this decision he made to open up uh, the economy after a very short shutdown, one of the shortest in the country uh, among states here. Um, and th- the governor has a tendency to, to kind of stack public health measures um, against the economy, saying, you know, a shutdown for the purposes of keeping people safe and slowing down infections would inherently hurt the economy. I think, you know, early on, before we had a vaccine or a really clear picture of what was going on with the pandemic, even then, um, there were arguments to be made that the quickest way to get the economy back into shape is to kick this problem of the pandemic. Um, And a lot of the, you know, a lot of states took the approach of having pretty intense lockdowns. We've seen that in other countries around the world. Um, And so, you know, I've heard that again and again out of the governor's mouth, kind of saying, well, you know, we're um, public health measures come at the expense of the economy. Uh, when I think there are you know, economists and public health officials who will say, no, we have to address this public health problem to get the economy back in shape. And I think that there's this kind of attribution, um, you know, from people like Governor Kemp and other, you know, Republican leaders who have made this argument that people in public health are somehow like against economic uh, success and against having a strong economy. Um, When really, you know, um, uh, having an an economy that's in the toilet creates a bunch of other public health issues. So um, it was interesting to hear him talk about that. Interesting in terms of local government, when local governments have the ability to make decisions as relates to their residents, Mm -hmm. as opposed to 
state government coming in? Yeah, I mean, and I think I've said this on on this program before. I mean, this this pandemic has been kind of a crash course in what people mean when they say local control. Um, you know, it's a it's an argument. Uh, it's a it's 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 an idea that uh, you know. Uh, elected officials tend to have different opinions on depending on the situation. Uh, you know, the governor, for him to say, and, you know, this is the way that the state constitution works, that, you know, local, uh, it's, it's up to local school dis- districts, say, to decide whether or not to put uh, a mask mandate in place. And we've seen that play out in, in Metro Atlanta. Districts um, that have resisted that, uh, Cobb County comes to mind, um, have, caught in a lot of, have caught a lot of incoming from parents who want that. Um, you know, so that is balanced out um, with, you know, the governor saying local cities can't put uh, certain restrictions in place. So, um, you know, I think listeners uh, are smart enough to kind of see how those two ideas sit with each other. Exactly. And, and Sam, when we talk about going back to March 14th, I don't know, remember how many times you've been on this program, as well as Dr. Carlos Del Rio and other epidemiologists and experts. And, I, and you know, we've had so many conversations about this. And whether or not someone thinks it's fair to go back and ask someone to assess their mm-hmm. leadership, you can look at numbers, you can look at data to see where Georgia is. You can put that, that information up against other states. Mm-hmm. You've been following this. Through your assessment, when you look at where we are now, there have been some, if you want to call them progress, achievements, mm-hmm. but there's still a lot more to do, as we talked about. Yeah, I mean, I, I think... Um we we've had some pretty uh, notable examples just in the last month about uh, the the ways that the public react to different elected officials' responses to the pandemic. I'm I'm thinking specifically about the recall effort of Governor Gavin Newsom in California. You know, I, Georgia and California. I don't know if they're exactly uh, you know opposite, uh, but they're probably as close as you can get. And we you know you saw even in a state like California um, that did take a much more kind of lockdown approach to fighting this pandemic. Um, that had political, uh, you know, implications for that state's leader. Uh, you know, Georgia doesn't have the same kind of recall mechanism. I don't know if kind of the uh, groundswell of unhappiness that we saw, um, at least to get that recall on the ballot in California, it failed. <laughs> um, if, if we if we would actually see that um, from you know folks here in Georgia, that same kind of opposition. But no, I think it's 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 totally fair to ask any elected official um, to go back and assess the decisions they've made, regardless of whether we're talking about a, a you know response to a public health issue or anything else. Interesting, too, in the praise for Dr. Kathleen Toomey. Look, Mm -hmm. we we know no one has dealt with this. That's a given. Mm -hmm. And making sure that Dr. Toomey had all the resources that the State Department of Public Health needed in addressing this virus. But also, too, when you go back and you look at a lot of press press conferences, Dr. Toomey didn't say a whole lot. Sometimes she, maybe three or four, she said a a lot more. But would would you have thought we should have seen more from her? Uh, being that she's the state's highest public health official. I mean, she's also on the governor's staff. I mean, I, I think that that's, that's just the fundamental structure of the way that relationship works is really, really important for listeners to keep in mind. I mean, that is an appointment. Um, she is appointed to that position uh, by the governor. Um, and so, you know, while I think Dr. Toomey and everyone else who works in public health you know, we, we can't impugn their motives. They're obviously doing the best they can in the structures that they find themselves in to help people. You know, um, 
she's an appointee. Her uh, apartment, her department's uh, budget is determined by state lawmakers. So there are certainly constraints, I think, that 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 she has, and and that every public health official across the country has had. You know, uh, coming out of the uh, 2008 economic recession, a lot of states cut back pretty drastically the money that went to public health because when there's not a pandemic <laughs> there's not you know an active crisis it's very easy um, I think for the people who hold the purse strings to say oh well maybe we don't need to you know to, to put money in, into these kinds of programs and you know we've we've seen that at all levels of government state government federal government public health was simply not prepared didn't have the resources for this pandemic and what I'm really interested to see Rose is, how that translates into support for public health moving forward. Mm -hmm. Governor Kemp would not commit to perhaps some type of metric, some type of milestone in terms of those that are fully vaccinated Mm -hmm. here at the state. And we are only at 47%. Now, if you look at the CDC data, it could be a little bit lower, but Mm -hmm. we'll go with the State Department of Public Health on what's on their dashboard. Surprising that there wasn't a milestone that would have been acceptable to him. I mean, I, I think I think any any public official is loath to be held to any number, right? <laughs> regardless, regardless of what you're talking about. I mean, I I, I think that um, I, you know I sit on these uh, press conferences that the White House COVID team does a few times a week, and I sit on most of them. And you know, for the first time in a long time, uh, Dr. Tony Fauci, the nation's kind of top infectious disease expert, was asked about herd immunity. This was a topic that I think got a lot of interest and attention this time last year. We were getting ready for vaccines to be rolled out and everyone was looking for, hey, what is this magic number that we need to hit where we can, you know, finally breathe this sigh of relief and say, oh, well, you know, we're 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 protected enough. Um, And he was asked about that yesterday. And he said something that he said again and again, it's that it's 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 not like we put a shot in, you know, the, the person's arm who sure. finally reaches 80% of all Americans and then the world fundamentally changes, right? right? And so, you know, I, I, I completely understand for those reasons why the governor would not want to say we want to get to, um, you know, X percent. But I also can see how a number like that could potentially be a goal, setting that, you know, stake in the ground and say, yeah, we might not reach this number, but why don't we at least try, right? Um, we saw that over the summer with the Biden administration trying to get 70% of all Americans with at least one shot. The, it goal, that goal wasn't reached, right. but, but I think that having that kind of big, bright number in everyone's mind uh, is, is probably gives everyone a sense of like, oh, we are working towards something. Well, let's focus for a minute. How are we doing in terms of state vaccinations? Yeah, I mean, the, the, the governor's, it was interesting to hear him pull out different numbers. I mean, this is... Yeah, because I was looking right at the numbers. I know. This is the issue over the course of the pandemic is, you know, the governor's office has one set of numbers. They might be a little bit different from the State Department of Public Health, which might be a little bit different from the CDC. Uh, so as of yesterday, you know, these numbers are updated every afternoon at three, roughly. Um, about 47% of uh, all residents are fully vaccinated vaccinated mm-hmm. in Georgia. That means about 53% of all residents are not. Um, you know, 53% of all Georgians, that's more than 5 million people. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the governor quoted back numbers to you of people over 12, which I don't think is a meaningless, uh, you know, kind of way to slice and dice the numbers, because we have to remember there are no vaccinations available for people under 12. Um, so I'm sure when you cut out, you know, children 11 and younger, you the numbers start to look a little bit better. 
But I think what this tells me is there's still a long way for the state to go. You know, Georgia, um, like I said, 47% are fully vaccinated. Nationwide, that number is about 56% of all Americans. Um, So, you know, about nine percentage points better at the national level. Uh, But Georgia, even though it's not at the bottom when it comes to kind of ranking amongst the states about vaccination rates, it's still close to the bottom and it's Mm -hmm. been there the whole time uh, for the most part. And, you know, I I think if, if we want to consider what that means down the road, there's just a considerable number of people in the state of Georgia um, who are still vulnerable without, you know, having been vaccinated. And, and they will get some sort of protection over time when they get infected. Well, but now we are into the area where boosters are going to be available mm-hmm. uh, for those that want them, for those that are eligible as well. But Sam, when we look at where we are now, because vaccines, we do have vaccines for the kids. And should we start then looking at, well, if we get more kids vaccinated, those 12 and over, that's going to add, probably boost that vaccination rate. Mm-hmm. You know, everyone talks about, I, I, we don't use the term herd immunity anymore because I haven't heard it in a long time. So I guess we can just throw it out of there. But the benefits of getting, but look, if parents don't want to get vaccinated, mm-hmm. odds are they probably won't let their kids get vaccinated. Yeah, I mean, it's, I, I, I get what you're getting at. I mean, I, there was some really exciting news. Um, I think it was early last week where, where Pfizer had released some initial data about the safety and efficacy of their vaccine in kids. And um, you know, it's it, it is as a health reporter <laughs> this late into the pandemic, um, I always try to, you know, take that kind of news with a grain of salt, because I think you're entirely right, Rose. The kinds of strong opposition that we have seen from some corners of our state and our country to vaccination. I mean, you put kids into the mix and it just it's going to ramp it up a lot. And so, you know, I think that what we'll likely see is the, you know, the individuals who themselves are vaccinated and who were, you know, first in line to get vaccinated, they're going to be the first in line for their kids. And then we're just going to have this still a substantial portion of the population that just has no interest in a vaccine that, despite the fact that there is, you know, years and years of technology behind it is still new um, and that they're not going to want to get their kids, uh, get their kids inoculated. You know, when we talk about incentives, you know, we know over in DeKalb, you know, CEO Thurman, they're giving folks, look, it appears that the prepaid debit cards seem to work. Yeah. So, hey, <laughs> Governor Kemp recently announced some some incentives for people to get vaccinated, I think a day off before Labor Day weekend, some benefits through the state health benefit plan. But do we have any sense of how these initiatives have been working? Well, the governor actually mentioned that day off before Labor Day, and I had reached out to his office to get these numbers, too. Um, they told me that uh, about 19,880 Georgians got their first shot on that Friday before Labor Day. That's September 3rd. Um, and a spokesperson for his office uh, tells me that that was the single highest day of vaccinations in mm-hmm. September, right? So that's some indication potentially that that worked. Um, I reached out to the Department of Community Health. They, of course, oversee the state health benefit plan for state employees, teachers, things like that. Um, that incentive was announced a month ago, uh, late August. There is no data on how many state health benefit uh, plan uh, members have taken advantage of these incentives. There were some financial incentives to help cover co-pays and mm-hmm. like a prepaid gift card, I think, was the other one. Um, so a month in, no no data on how well that's working. Well, and speaking of data and what's working or what may not be working, was interesting our back and forth about the University System of Georgia. You mm-hmm. know, I hear from professors and students. Now, he did say... 
maybe we need to check into that. But what are you hearing in terms of this? Are you hearing anything at all in terms of the contact contract contact tracing as it relates to college students in the in the University of Georgia system here? Because we believe the protocol is that students report, and then that information is to even trickle down to professors. Mm-hmm. Professors are telling me they're not getting it. I mean, I don't know if you remember being a college-age individual, but you got a lot of priorities that maybe aren't telling your, uh, you know, school clinic that you've been exposed to someone with COVID. I mean, I, I think that um, I mean I, I haven't heard any any particular issues um, out of the university system with reporting uh, of contact tracing. I mean, I know uh, last year at least um, schools took a little bit of a different approach, where testing was I think a lot more compulsory than it is now. Um, you know, I, I think this is the challenge with contact tracing in general. I, there is this assumption that, say, if you're exposed to someone with COVID-19, you are going to put your interest, which is you want to keep on living your life. You don't want to quarantine. You don't want to go get tested, that you're going to put, you know, your interests um, behind the greater public good. Um, and, you know, not to say that college kids are any worse at that than any of us, but, you know, I've had situations in the last year where I've had to weigh whether or not I've been exposed. And the mm-hmm. first cro- you know, thought that crosses my mind is like, well, there goes my plans for the next two weeks, right? Like right. It's, not, it's not always um, as simple as saying, well, everyone who gets exposed is necessarily going to go report because there, there are, you know, consequences for that. So, um, so yeah, you know, I think with... Um, with, with colleges as with 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 public schools, though the the risks are different. Um, then you know you've got a, a bunch of people. Uh, vaccination coverage even in younger adults is not all that great when compared to older populations. And you know living in congregate settings, sitting in big classrooms with hundreds and hundreds of students when masks aren't required right. and vaccines aren't required, you know I can see that as a as a perfect kind of storm for a virus to spread. Well, and it's something that we will dig deeper into because if the community has questions about it, then we certainly have questions as well. Sam, what are you working on now? What are you following? You know, I had a really interesting conversation, um, and I'll preview it here. This is going to be our podcast episode tomorrow um, with someone from the National Institutes of Health uh, kind of looking at what comes next in the pandemic. Um, Over the course of the pandemic, there's been this kind of group of different mathematicians and epidemiologists who have put together these kinds of models for where things go from here. Um, And kind of this this latest set that was released last week looks at six months out, so into early next year, uh, really paints a picture that is a little bit optimistic. Um, You know, they kind of bring these four different models in. uh, They produce these four different models based on different variables. Um, You know, say vaccination coverage in younger people Mm -hmm. or, you know, a new variant that we haven't um, identified yet. And for the most part, all of those models tend to point to a situation where into early next year, um, the coronavirus might exit the kind of pandemic phase that we've all been living in for the last 18 months, where there's just going to be kind of this baseline level of infection. People will still be getting sick and Mm -hmm. getting exposed, um, but it's really not going to overwhelm the healthcare system like we've seen at many different points during this pandemic. And so... You know, I, I, I 
think it's important to know to note here that in talking about this that models can be wrong <laughs> right and i was about to my, my question sam and i didn't want to interrupt you but my question was going to be do these models also give you sort of the the uh, the metrics the mo- you know that they need to look at because while people may not want to give an exact number or mm-hmm. but folks folk regular folk they want to know okay tell this to me so that I understand is what do we need to get to? Are we talking about less than 5,000 deaths a day, mm-hmm. a thousand deaths a day? Are we talking, you know, and I know, yeah. I understand health That's officials don't want to get into that, but for folks like well, me, it needs something a little bit more concrete. I mean, I want to know that too. I have asked that question directly of the CDC director um, and, 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 you know, this was kind of a CDC director kind of answer, but <laughs> this was during the vaccine rollout. And she said, well, we don't we there there is no acceptable background level of disease because we have a vaccine, which like, OK, sure. I get that you have to say that. But there's going to be a point, I think, when even Dr. Rochelle Walensky, you know, her breathes a sigh of relief because there are going to be other issues that eclipse this. So. I want to know that answer too, Rose. Um, and I've asked, you know, probably the best people in the government uh, what what that indicator will be, and and they don't want to put one out there because, sure. you know, I, I think that from from the public health approach, they want to drive this as far into the ground as they can. They don't want to say, you know, it's it's like uh, they want to run through the finish line tape. They don't want to hit the tape and stop running. They want to keep going as fast and hard as they can to try to, you know, protect as many people as they can. WABE health reporter and host of the podcast, Did You Wash Your Hands? Sam Whitehead, as always, appreciate you coming on and telling us, giving us more information. That's, yeah. all, that's all you can do. <laughs> that's all I try to do. Good to be here, Rose. All right. Thanks, Sam. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. The Gold Dome Scramble podcast is now plugged in, a WABE politics podcast. New name, same on-the-ground reporting from us, WABE politics reporters Sam Greenglass and Raul Bally. We'll cover local, state, and national politics as we talk to politicians and voters to break down each week's biggest headlines. New episodes drop on Fridays. Listen and subscribe at WABE.org or your favorite podcast platform. WABE.